Welcome, everyone, and thank you for coming. Um, welcome to Chocolate and Romance 101. Um, we invite you um, to visit the Humanities Department on the third floor um, for books about literature and for the actual um, books themselves. Um, they will be located in the, in the Fiction Department on the first floor. Um, the authors, Eliza Knight, Stephanie Draven, Laura Kay, Christy Barth, Lee and Lee Nolan um, will introduce themselves, but we want to thank them very much for coming. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So we're going to just do a test on this. Can you hear my booming voice without the microphone, everybody? Excellent. Great. Then we're just we're going to go rogue and, and do it that way. We are really glad you came today. We are just going to cover everything you could possibly want to know about romance, and we are happy to entertain any questions you have at any point. We want this to be an interactive discussion because it is our favorite topic, and we love talking about it, but we want to hear what you like, too. So that's the idea of today. Um, we should introduce ourselves, and we're going to start on this end with Leah. Hi, I'm Leah Nolan. I write young adult books. This is the first book in my series. Um, these are books that are, take place in the South Carolina low country and they deal with gala hoodoo magic. And three kids find a wicked flesh-eating, um, they find a treasure that when they open it ignites a wicked flesh-eating curse and then they need to learn the magic to undo those curses. I also write, um, these are sweet romance, so there's, um, they're for younger teens and um, sweet means that they don't get hot at all. <laughs> they, they are um, very sweet, uh, kissing, kissy, kissy books. Um, and then I also write category romance for adults. Um, that's on the sweeter side. Uh, I do have one steamier uh, scene in this one book that I have, but it, um, but it may actually be cut to be a completely sweet romance. So it's very different. My writing is very different than some of the other writing here. So. And actually, I'm going to take a quick sidebar from the introductions. We're just we're already getting off track here. But mm -hmm. Leah has the two books she held up, and there's a third book in the series coming. And not a huge spoiler, book two ends on a cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask how everybody out there feels about that, because she heard the other night from an irate fan, <laughs> a fan who adores the books, adores the writing, but basically said, how dare you end on a cliffhanger, and I have to wait another year. Do you guys like Cliffhangers. It doesn't have to be in romance in anything. If you know that it will be resolved in book three, do you like it? Do you not? We will learn from this. Yes. Let's hear, we want to let's know. hear from you. You do. You would not accost yeah. the author and say, how dare you? And you say you like them too? You're okay with the cliffhangers? You got, I saw somebody's hand go up. Um, I, want, I want the syrup. It doesn't have to and you know, some books, they have an ending to them for that set. Mm -hmm. And then it picks up in the next book. Mm -hmm. I can deal with that. Give me a part of an ending. Mm -hmm. A little closure. Yeah, yeah. close it for, because it's, all, it's just like our life. There's always something else going on. <laughs> so you close it, you're done. And then the next segment, there's something else. And yeah, you said you like nonfiction, and yet you're okay well, with cliffhangers? Well, uh, I'll just say, I'll give an example. I'm a movie writer, too, and I remember all the women. Gigantic! Yeah. Yeah. I assume that she will. My 
Hey, come on in. We've got chocolate and romance. <laughs> right. Well, that is good to know. <coughs> we are we are okay with that. Everyone is basically okay with the cliffhangers. Let's all start writing them. Cliffhanger. <laughs> a lot is resolved, but there is a twisty turn. It's the kind the she asked that, for. Yeah, it's, resolved yeah. somewhat, and the most of the story is resolved, but there is something. When I ask a question about Conjure and the Lord, mm -hmm. are there any real life senses dealing with uh, mystical, the magical? Is there any kind of real magical words there, in any of the books? This, um, I, I strive very hard to be as accurate to hoodoo magic as I possibly can because I have tremendous respect for the Gala and I don't want to do anything to exploit them or denigrate them in any way. So I am pretty exhaustive in the way that I do research. In order to, um, to make them interesting, to, uh, you know, to keep the story going along, I have in some ways made the magic bigger. So like I've incorporated elemental magic and I've made um, the weather change a little bit when they do the magic, but the spells that are in these books are actual Gullah Hoodoo spells. Okay. I have been around with Swami when I was a little girl. Mm -hmm. Some may know me as Empress for Cry, or you may know me as Alice in Yale. For some of us and some other people, this is a very high spiritual yeah. time. Yeah. So magic and everything, the spirit is great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted to know. Yeah, yeah. I know these are children, so. Mm -hmm. <sighs> yeah. Now these, um, these, um, I try very hard to be as respectful and accurate as I can be, so. Yeah. And that's actually something you may not be aware of, but it's not just historical fiction authors mm -hmm. that do a lot of research, no matter what the genre. We all do a ton of research mm -hmm. and strive really hard to be respectful and 100% authentic to whatever it is we're writing about. I mean, Laura, you've had to learn stuff you never thought you would be learning about. My browser search history surely has caught the attention of the FBI by now for my <laughs> new series, um, in which I researched uh, organized crime in Maryland, and there's a huge database set up by the University of Maryland of all the actual gangs and known crime rings in the state of Maryland. and goes into all the detail about, you know, their gang symbols and the dr known drug activity that they're involved with and on and on and on and on. So was d doing that. Um, I have only fired historical weapons because I'm an historian by training and um, the, uh, I work for the Naval Academy and once a year they bring in a historical weapons demonstration and you can go and fire the old, like fire musket and stuff. So I've never fired modern firearms and so you know just like the basic thing of you know you don't a lot of times you'll see um images of people holding a gun and they've got their finger wrapped around the trigger people who are actually trained to handle weapons do not put their finger on the trigger when they're not about to fire <laughs> they keep it straight along the side of the barrel so just little details like that 
Um, if somebody knows anything about guns and you've got your hero's finger just resting on the trigger, they're totally going to know this guy does not know how to handle a weapon. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless that's the kind of characterization you're going for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to say something to you in history, but I do love my fictional life. But even non there's many cliffhangers in history. Like I was And, and I was going to say thank you for giving us that awesome segue. So we can go back to introductions to a historical author. I'm Eliza Knight. I write um, Scottish romance and contemporary romance and time travel. And this is the latest book in one of my historical romance series, the Stolen Bride series. And this is a contemporary Christmas story that's actually kind of a spin-off to the Stolen Brides. It's a descendant of the heroes in these books. And to make your books authentic, where did you go last year? Oh, Scotland. Well, this year I went to Scotland. <laughs> this year? <laughs> Scotland did a, a huge research trip, and that was really great. I'm going to go again next year, too. Now, to be fair, there was some fun had in this trip. It was not 100% <laughs> yes, research. there was some fun, but there was also a lot of research. Were there any good-looking men with kilts? Sadly, no. <laughs> I was actually very disappointed that I did not see that. Well, it is the 21st century. They don't <laughs> run around in kilts all the time. There was anymore. a really good-looking guy that worked at the store I kept going to, though, to up minutes on my phone. <laughs> um, I am Christy Barth. I write contemporary romance that <clears throat> also requires... Re I research what poison you can make in your own backyard. <laughs> Fun! So I think the Not FBI might be your for me, too. <laughs> uh, but you would be amazed at the stuff that that comes up. I had a character who was a very wealthy Viscount, and so he had to serve the best champagne, so suddenly I'm researching what in the last 20 years was the best vintage champagne to serve. Out of all the people who read my books, probably five maybe would say, oh no, the 94 was a better champagne. I certainly didn't know, but I spent the time to make sure that it was right, and then I looked at the price and said, I'm never gonna buy that bottle, <laughs> but it is right, and now I know what it is. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Stephanie Draven. I am a national best-selling, award-winning author of more than half a dozen romances, including It Stings So Sweet, which is my um, most recent 1920s erotic romance that I'm totally in love with. Um, I also write paranormal romance, contemporary romance, and as Stephanie Dre, I write um, historical fiction about Cleopatra's daughter, and that's the Nile series, which is back there. And I probably won't be reading from that today, but I do want to talk just briefly about it because of what you were saying about sort of respecting that, you know, even though we're addressing magic in some of our books, this is, um, this is a real faith for people. This is very important in their cultural heritage and to their spirituality. And I came against that in the Nile series in that I did not realize when I started it that the worship of Isis is still an ongoing religion. This, uh, it, it's been stretching all the way for, for 2,000 years. Uh, it's, it's been an active faith. And so I had to write in a way that was very respectful to that faith. And um, I actually made a, a wonderful friendship with um, a priestess of Isis, who is, the, who, um, is an American woman uh, named Isadora M. Forrest. And she sort of helped me make sure that I 
got the spells right and that I sort of understood the spirituality in that religion. So that's one of the neatest things that we can do in writing is sort of pay homage to faiths and spirituality that are sort of neglected in the world. And? And, the, and the last book comes out. Oh, and the, thank you. <laughs> and the last book comes out in December, and I have advanced copies of it here. You are the first people who get a chance to see it. So it's Daughters of the Nile on the Back Table. Hi, everybody. Welcome, Con in. My name is Laura Kay, and I write contemporary and paranormal romance and romantic suspense. <clears throat> I have four series going on right now, two about military heroes, one about vampires, and one about Greek gods. Um, and my next book comes out on Tuesday. It's called Hard As It Gets, and it's the first in the Harding series. It's awesome. <laughs> and you have a Christmas book that just came out last week? This last one, week? The yes. Kilted Christmas Wish. And I have a Christmas book coming out in between their releases, so we are ready to fill your stocking, <laughs> which is what we actually want to talk about. Uh, romances can be great gifts for people. Like who? Quick, hit me, hit me. Mother, Mom, anybody, sisters, friends. Like, read off the page if you can. <laughs> um, teachers, if they're not as incredibly hot as this one, perhaps. <laughs> Um, I did a signing last night, and teacher. someone bought copies of the book for uh, for friends for Christmas. They're great mm -hmm. yeah. stocking stuffers because they are still relatively so inexpensive com compared to things, and, and it's a great gift to share because then you can talk about it with your friends mm -hmm. and perhaps fall into a love of reading similar genres. Um, coworkers, if you have an office party where you have to bring a $10 gift to exchange with who knows who, Take a book. I mean, it's it's a no-brainer. But how many of you have one of these? Or by the opposing brand? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Is the purple cover thrown yeah. off? She, she, means a, she means an e-reader. Or an iPad. What you may not be aware of is that you can gift e-books. I did it for a friend's birthday this weekend. Um, you just buy it like normal and say it's a gift, but you can choose the date it shows up in their email. So it ju you can say, please have it arrive after 12.30 p.m. on December 25th so as not to spoil the surprise. And pow, it's there. So yes, ebooks are becoming a new craze that we're all happy about because we all have books in, in ebooks. But don't forget that, you know, just because you might not give the paper kind anymore, give ebooks. They're <laughs> wonderful. They're great for people far away as well. Um, they make an awesome, awesome gift. No shipping costs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can get a little spicier, perhaps, if you <laughs> want to give it to somebody to read on the subway. Um, did anyone else want have anything more on gifts? How awesome they are? I like to get them. Yes. Yeah, they're great <laughs> gifts to give yourself, too. <laughs> yes, they are. And or request Amazon or Barnes & Noble gift cards. And you can give more. I was able to give my dad three books last year as ebooks that were less than the price of the one hardcover out of all the three that I would have given him normally. And so that was a nice treat for him to get three times as many. So we're going to kick off with some questions for the audience. I told you this is going to be interactive. But you get chocolate as reward. As reward for answer. Everybody gets chocolate, let's yeah. be clear. Um, we want to know, we're, we're going to kick off with what was the first romance novel you ever read? Let's, let's throw it at us. 
<laughs> really? Wow. So okay. you are new to the genre. Oh. We're so glad you came. <laughs> it sucked you in. I like that. Are you going to see the movie in two and a half years? I'm not sure about that. I don't see how they can make a movie out of the series. It was just. We actually said, discussed that at my book club this morning that. We read Fifty Shades in book club and said, I do not know how they can put that on the screen because there's so much of it that can't be put on the screen. And yet then I said, but you're all going to go to see it to see if they do it, aren't you? And they went, They're going to figure out a way to do it. <laughs> and what is the other one, Nine and a Half Weeks or whatever? Oh, yeah, they did do Nine and a Half Weeks. So who else, what was your first romance that you ever read? Loretta? So historical fiction sucked you in. But my mom used to collect historical mysteries, not, or not mysteries, historical romances, particularly the Regency era. So mm -hmm. I could always pick up one and go, so what's happening here? <laughs> <laughs> Who else? What have we got going in the back? What was your first romance? Oh, okay. really? So we have some newer... Uh, Recent converts. Yes. I like that. Yes. Do you remember which one it was? <clears throat> I don't. Because I'm going to see her in two weeks, and I would tell her, you've got this fan in Maryland. Here. <laughs> she didn't say she loved it. She just yeah. said it was her first. <laughs> well, she kept going. What about you in the chair? Her, uh, are those the um, Stephanie Plum series or her earlier stuff? I'm not sure the first one I read. I think I read maybe three or four of them. And I really have not read more than three. So I'm quite new to you. We will introduce you. My favorite novel to read. I just so happened to come across those because they were popular among a few of my family members. And so I got caught up in it. Just trying. Well, that's always fun to be able to talk about books with your family. Yeah. And they, they say that no matter how much money a publisher throws at a book, it is, not, it is not the advertising that sells books. It is word of mouth, and that is the perfect story to <laughs> illustrate that. You know, somebody liked it, and they told you, and off you went. What about over here? Mm -hmm. You're looking at me like you're thinking... Uh, there is no, we're not going to go back and ask your mom, is this true? Was this her favorite one? Huh. Very, very first. Just, you know, what one of the first was that, that drew you into the genre. I don't remember. I just remember that my aunt used to have the Harlequin subscription. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you what the first one was. I remember what mine was. I'll volunteer to make people look at Mine was um, Beloved by Bertrice Small. And I was, yeah, yeah, I was uh, 13. I was way too young to be reading that book. Um, but my grandmother had a stash of all of these really old school bodice rippers. Um, and I read almost all of them. She loved anything where there was kidnapping, you know, kidnapping, pirates, rogues, Vikings. Um, the, the, the naughtier, the better. Um, and I, I think it twisted me. No, I. <laughs> I think it gave me an appreciation of the adventures that women could have. And, and that's, 
yeah, we'll talk a little bit about more about this later, but it, it's one thing that I do miss about sort of the old school historicals. So, aha, what was yours first? Um, if I can say that I don't read a real lot of fiction as much as I, uh, I watch, I see movies now, I'll get the book sometimes. Mm -hmm. But um, um, some of the things I've read when I was younger, like 17 or 16, like Love Story. And oh, Eric Segal. Uh -huh. The Love Story. Mm -hmm. I love that book. And Where You Were. And, um, now you know in modern times they would say that Gone with the Wind was not a romance. Does anybody know why? Well, it's historical and, and and the way you were. Yeah. And oh. the other, and love story. Um, do you know why? Because there's no happily ever after. Now, for me, when I read Gone with the Wind, I was convinced that she, of course she was going to go after Rhett and she was going to win him back. So I didn't think it ended badly. I was, I was sure it was a happy ending, but um, not everyone thinks that. No, forget Ashley. <laughs> we, we could fill the whole two hours on a debate between Ashley and Rhett, who she should be with. So we can't, we can't go too far astray with that. It would suck me right I, Totally, the new people who just came in don't have chocolate, and it's just scaring me. Leah, can you take the train over there? Yes. Everybody gets chocolate. Yes. But to get the chocolate, you got to tell us what your first romance was that you ever read. Uh, first romance novel you ever read, or that made you fall in love with the genre and keep reading? Was a romance. Okay. What was it? It was a That is a romance. It counts. No. You have to come sit next to these ladies. Yeah. <laughs> she did it. It's her fault. I can't tell you to read that. I told you to read Damon's Slave. Oh, that's awesome. Your favorite <laughs> romance heroine and why? And again, we are going to take these notes and take them back because mm -hmm. we like knowing what appeals to you in a book and mm -hmm. you know how we can write more that you would really like. So if anyone wants to toss out a favorite romance heroine. In any book? In any book. Sure. Or just any particular Whatever you want okay. to throw out. Mm -hmm. I like um, strong women that tames a man. You know, that he loves her, but without her, he's nothing. Mm -hmm. I like those type of books. That, <laughs> that a hard like an alpha man and can say he's so bossy, I gotta do this, you gotta do that. But in the back of her mind she says, No, I'm not. <laughs> you know, I'm not. I like a strong woman. Anyone else? I would say I, is this lady in the hat here? Do you have a favorite heroine? Allison. Allison? Uh, romance and I like I like when the woman is the stronger. Neither one of them are overbearing. Mm -hmm. Like, just in general, I mean, natural relationship, because I'm one that grew up with a young man. We grew up together. Our mothers had us together, were pregnant with us together. But there's a gentleman, some people look at his size at six, five, six something, and I'm sure so a lot of things they look at and they think he's going to be overbearing. He's going to be the one that wrote him and then he wow, and he's not like that at all. I like it when there's this, the male is the sweet one, the woman 
has to do the teaching <laughs> and she brings the romance because he is beautiful. So when he is so beautiful and desirable, then that love just comes right through. That romance just comes on in. That's what I That's great. <laughs> and a nice twist on expectations. Yes, yeah. in the I back. Forgot, I forgot probably one of the greatest romances of all time where you have a lot of things going against you. One of my first ones I read to my big Shakespeare fan was Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, that would never take off in this day and age, though. If the ending's a bit of a bummer. Kill themselves. <laughs> it but is it, a classic, yes. but it's an interesting take on how, and, and this actually applies to the romance genre, books that were written 30 years ago in romance that were huge and the blockbuster bestsellers would never sell today because they were, a lot of them were based on the bodice-ripping rape culture of pirates and what have you. There's got to be a better way to say it, Laura. You're looking at me like there is a better way to, to describe that. No, not at all. Oh. But so Romeo and Juliet, great book. Shakespeare rocks, of course, but um, that would never sell today as a romance. And you know, remember, though, they didn't live as long as they house. 14 or 15 is yeah, but if you if you have two 20-year-olds off themselves at the end of a romance, that's not going to go over well now either. <laughs> I don't think. It, I it would, would not try it. It would just be a different <laughs> genre. I mean, I, right. I'm yeah, sure it's that... It's more like a tragic love exactly. story. Exactly. I'm so sorry. I don't know how to work this part. <laughs> 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 but Romeo and Juliet is one of my favorites, But too. romance... It's so helpful. Yeah, so as a genre involved. Intense, yeah. It's a pretty <laughs> ringtone. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's okay. It's all good. Yes. I actually noticed back when I was inventorying old romances for my now deceased bookstore, um, there was a whole range of nurses falling in love with doctors. <laughs> and then there was a whole range of Scotsmen, which I think started with Outlander, but I'm not sure. Yeah. And, and then now it's vampires and werewolves and, you know. There is still an entire line at Harlequin of medical romance, mm -hmm. but I can point to that as the one example. Yeah. And between the five of us up here, we write in just about every romance genre there is, and I don't think any of, well, you've got a nurse, but you don't have the nurse doctor thing going on. Yeah. Oh, right. There's a new one for Entangle, just put out a, a doctor, and I was like, oh man, they're doing doctors now? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but Not that there's anything wrong with doctors. No, but you know. <laughs> If I had to name a famous or my favorite romance heroine, it might be Sky O'Malley, which is also virtually small. But she was um, a female pirate, and I really liked how they, how the, the author turned that trope. So, are there other heroines that you remember from? You? Yeah. Okay. My favorite. Mm -hmm. Okay. She was just determined. She was not going to let him go. Is that from Twilight or Love and Awakening? Oh. Oh. Okay. Okay. She's saying um, the heroine from the Black Dagger Brotherhood books? Let's be clear, all of them in that series yeah. are wonderful. I can't pick a favorite. Yes. Although, Laura, I, I know your favorite hero. I've never heard your favorite heroine. It's probably Bella. That was my least favorite book of the series, too. Forced myself to <laughs> But I love the rest of them. I even like oh, the rest. Oh, yeah. Facebook. 
That one was kind of slow for me too. And I was debating whether to go on to the next one, but she she regained my faith. <laughs> I know that some, like she said, Fury's book wasn't, you know, I had to force myself to finish it, and the Payne's book, the but second half got better. Deep, like, there's still good parts of it, but mm -hmm. yeah. some, of, some of those males are... Mm -hmm. All right, so we all want to talk about the heroes. Fine, let's talk about the heroes. Okay, okay. Which what is that? Oh gosh, is that the one with Alexander Chevalier? Oh gosh, he's older. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, a cougar. Little May December All right, so heroes. Yeah. We already heard the least favorite hero. Who mm -hmm. are some of your favorite heroes and why? I've been here all day. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, go. <laughs> seven, seven books a week, so. Mm -hmm. All right, who are who are the Jamie Fraser fans in the audience from Outlander? Yeah, okay. Uh, you should name some famous heroes. <laughs> My favorite is Zadist. So we already got to talk about him. I'm <laughs> uh, series. Like Shirley Kenyon, Asheron, Presley mm -hmm. um, Cole, I like Malcolm. He's my favorite. <coughs> I like, um, <laughs> oh shoot, Rao from the new species. Has anybody ever been to? Oh, like Lorraine Donner. Oh my god. That's what I was trying to think of, Burr. Yeah. Oh okay. my god. These sound like paranormal. What about average, everyday guys in contemporary books? Like Does anybody like Christian, those? Um... No, not like Christian. <laughs> yes, oh my God. <laughs> Jeremy and her is a good uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like him too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already playing the ball. I have a sense of humor. I'm a sucker for them. I like Kate. Whether they're contemporary or, or historical. Sense of humor yes. is important, being mm -hmm. able to laugh. Mm -hmm. Okay, the most horrible guy. Oh yeah. So he's a guy you love to hate but love. of those dark they're usually more erotica than romance although there's a lot of romance in it oh okay wow then well the i was thinking of, of um uh cj roberts um oh. captive in the dark the same thing you, you you she does such a good job of putting you in his head and you know where he's coming from even though as you're reading it you know it's objectively horrible yeah. stuff yeah. that he's doing but she's very masterful at manipulating your emotions, which is what an author, uh, authors are always doing that. Sometimes you're more aware of it than others. And in this one, I was very aware of it because I so did not want to find him in any way appealing, but she- But you couldn't help yourself. But, but she, she makes you, she makes him sympathetic even as he's doing yes. truly horrible things. Well, my you hero said, in this book, it kidnaps the heroine within like the first chapter. And the same thing, he has to, he doesn't care, the people that he's giving her to, he knows they're gonna kill her, and you know, you wanna hate him, but you see what's going on inside his head, and it, I mean, obviously it turns around. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost more acceptable 
Yeah. 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 Yes. Definitely. Yes. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, because it's like you make acceptance. Like, oh well, you know, they did that back then. So he was a product of his times. <laughs> so now that you've told us what right. you like in heroines, we were gonna speak a little bit about what our favorite heroines are that we've written and why. Leah, you got a favorite? Well, um, I love Emma um, Guthrie. She's the heroine of this series. Um, she is a girl who, I modeled her after my own daughter, um, who was very shy and was kind of a square peg. Um, she's very artistic, and so she never, my daughter never ever talked in school, and it wasn't until she went to uh, um, an art school, middle school, she sort of found her place, but she, my daughter hadn't gotten into that place by the time I was writing this. So I wanted to take a, a, um, a character who was very reticent and um, sort of a loner and try to find a way to give her a voice. And so that's what I did with Emma. She um, is definitely a loner. She spends a lot of time in the woods by herself sketching nature. And that's partly why she becomes so familiar with a lot of the plants that she ends up using, because kudu magic is a plant-based folklore um, ma- uh, magic. And so um, so I use that to, to her benefit. She, um, But the thing that I love the most about Emma is that she is so brave and she's so determined to protect the people that she loves that she will risk her own life to save her brother when he gets this wicked flesh-eating curse. And then when she finds out that um, Cooper, who is her best friend, who she secretly loved for at least a year, um, when she finds out that his soul is doomed, um, she commits herself to doing whatever it takes to save him. And she really is um, self-sacrificing without being um, pathetic, (laughs) I think. She's very strong, and she just stands up for them. she realizes that love is, um, is the strongest bond there is. So, so I love that about her. I feel like none of us can answer because how do you fight? I based yeah. her on my own daughter. I mean, <laughs> well, I how did. can we say, I oh, did. our favorite is because? Yeah, but then my daughter repaid me by not reading it. <laughs> <laughs> she will eventually. She will eventually, but um, yeah. Who was yours favorite to write and why? Well, I have a couple favorites. No, I mean, one, it's so one, hard. One. Okay, well, then I'm going to say um, my heroine from this book, her name's Heather. She's so crazy. She, I mean, she's, she grew up without her parents, and her older brothers are raising her, and because she's so crazy and undisciplined, they send her off to her aunt all the time to be disciplined, and then she comes back home, and, and that's how she's been through the whole series. And in this book, I got to really um, play with her and have her, you know, be an adult and make these decisions, but still be just so headstrong and um, just, I don't know. I just love her because she's so feisty and she wants to do her own things and make her own life. And she's decided she's leaving her entire family. She is going to go find William Wallace and um, make him get back in the war because he was the best thing that uh, the Scots ever had. And she has this idea that she's going to be able to do that. Um, <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Especially when the hero's like, um, no, you're coming with me and you're going to die. <laughs> Laura, what was your favorite? Who was your favorite? Sorry. This is not really easy to I say. I did not write this question, so don't blame you know, me. Um, <laughs> because when I think of one and I think of the reason why I like her, then it makes me think, oh, yeah, but this other one. So I've got, I've written um, 
all are part of 16 or 17 stories. And Eliza's written more, so I'm impressed that you were able to go like right to one. But um, one that stands out in particular is a character um, named Joss, who was the heroine from One Night with a Hero. And she grew up in the foster care system, <coughs> and she did not have a great upbringing. And um, in order to sort of like claim her life for herself, she expresses herself through um, body art. So she's got a lot of tattoos, she's got pink highlights in her hair, she's got a lot of piercings. And that was her way of sort of like, because she didn't have a family identity, and she needed a way to find and hold on to her own identity. So she expressed it through her body. And um, she grew up working with uh, kids because she wanted to, to be to someone uh, what a few key people had been in her life when she didn't have parents. And so I really admire that, you know, someone who grows up through hardship but does not become an embittered person or a an angry person or a person who, you know, considers themselves a victim. And so I really admired her a lot in that, in that book. And so when she meets the hero who is uh, an Army Special Forces guy who's not in a good emotional place at the beginning of the story and he's got a lot of rough edges... Um, you know, she, it makes her able to, um, stand up to him, um, put him in his place when he needs it and to stand up for herself at, at some really key moments when he doesn't necessarily do the right thing or react the right, right way. Um, she refuses to let herself be treated badly. Um, and so when they have a particular fight, it, it takes a long time, probably longer than you've ever seen in most romances. They're, they're not together for a big chunk of the story um, as he's trying to make up to her what, something that he's done. And um, she doesn't take him right back. In fact, they're apart for, wow, that was a wow. very <laughs> impressive sneeze. Um, they're, probably, uh, they're probably separated for about 10 weeks um, in the middle of the book. Uh, and you understand why when you know more about the story. But So I really respected her a lot for that, and I think the fact that she didn't let him get away with some of the stuff that he did actually is a big part of what helps him get over some of his issues because he realizes, like, people aren't going to accept me in the messed up way that I am right now. And if I want to be accepted, then that means i got to get my stuff together. So I think I would pick her as one of my favorites. Stephanie? <clears throat> I like to say that it's my mission to write very smart books for very bad girls. And so I pay a lot of attention to my heroines, who are almost always bad girls on some level. Um, and, and when I say bad, I don't, I don't mean that they are morally bankrupt. I mean that they just tend to be non-traditional. So I, I love all of my heroines. Um, and I can't really write a romance unless I do. But uh, my favorite is probably from It Stings So Sweet, and that's um, Claire Cartwright, who is a starlet of the silent screen in the 1920s. She is the most, a famous movie star, and she is extremely jaded, and she tells the hero that, she, you know, he says, oh, so you're jaded, so you've seen it all and done it all, and she says, twice. Uh, so she does not believe in love. She does not have any tenderness about her, and she is hard. She's a hard girl. But when she falls, she falls so hard that it broke my heart. And that's why I love her. I love her dearly. And hopefully I'll, I'll get to read uh, a little bit from her today. I am the complete opposite of you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite heroine 
was, and I'm looking to see if it's up on the screen. Oh, it's not. Uh, it's from my book, Planning for Love, which is back there. And she's a wedding planner, and she believes in love so much. It's just absolutely crazy. She believes that everyone should be married, and everything should have a happy ending, which is basically what I believe. I won't go see movies if I know they don't have a happy ending because there's enough sadness in life and everything should be happy. And it's not a lot of the time. Uh, so I love her belief in love. I love her belief that love can make everything better. And, you know, if not love for a, a boyfriend, you know, love for your family, your friends, no matter what, love can enrich your life and make it better. And she just takes that all the way to this way of the scale. So she is Clara's antithesis, but I bet they could be friends somehow. Uh, uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, do you want to talk about your favorite hero you've written and why? And we'll start at this end this time. Okay, this is even this, harder for me. Yeah. Uh, I apologize. I, I shouldn't have interrupted, but once I did. No, go ahead. It's okay. Are all of you writers or are you just. All five of us, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, we all write romance, and so <laughs> romance heroes? Yes. Yeah. Okay. This is harder for me because the hero is what comes to me first when a story idea first comes to me. And so I, I love my heroes most of all. Um, so I would go with, I probably would go with Marco from the book Her Forbidden Hero. And the reason why I would pick him is because Marco was medically discharged from the Army Special Forces when he had a head injury. And in 2008, I had a minor traumatic brain injury, and so I put a lot of myself into his character. And so I, I identify a lot with him because I have gone through what he was going through in the book. Um, and, uh, and so I think I, I feel him the most, if that makes sense. Um, and so he's probably the one that's absolutely closest to my heart, but it's a tight race. It's a tight race between him and a couple of others, I would say. Stephanie? Oh, um, <clears throat> heroes are actually harder for me to figure out which one is my favorite, but I, I guess because Clara might be my favorite heroine, um, I think that the man that she falls in love with, Leo Vanderberg, is probably my favorite hero. He's a World War I flying ace. He is very confident, and once he sets his mind on the fact that he is going to win this movie star over and make her his bride, he is relentless. And he is very unconventional in his approach. So uh, I, I, like, I really like a, a man who is strong enough to handle uh, hard-to-handle heroin. Leah. Um, I'm going to surprise you by not saying it, it's not Cooper Beaumont, okay. my guy from this book. Um, partly because Cooper, the thing with Cooper is that he's doomed. So he's good in the beginning. And you know, the fear is that he if this horrible curse takes him over, he'll be horrible. So Cooper doesn't have the same kind of an arc that a, that a, a typical hero would have. Mm -hmm. So like the joke about Cooper Beaumont, I often say when I'm writing him, is that he's Cooper of the Golden Book. <laughs> like he's perfect in every way. <laughs> so I, so he, his journey is not as fulfilling to me because this really is Emma's journey. This, this series is Emma's journey. So I have to pick my guy from my category romance, um, uh, Carter Anderson, who starts out a total arrogant millionaire corporate magnet jerk who is like the hottest guy in town, but also <laughs> he's very wounded because he his ex-wife 
pulled a very horrible, nasty trick on him, and so he's just jaded, and he cannot possibly think about loving anybody, especially anyone who might want his money. So you get to see him change over the course of the book that, you know, going from this distrustful, arrogant guy to someone who's sort of, that arrogance is broken down, but then he, and, and in the process in, in learning to love Gwen, the, the heroine, he becomes um, a good guy, and he, he learns how to love again. So, so I, that is a more uh, fulfilling arc to me, you know, to watch him to grow in that way. So, yeah. Eliza? That's my guy. And you can't just choose by which one has the hottest cover. I'm not. Because <laughs> they all have amazing pecs. They really do. <laughs> so the running joke in my house for the last year and a half has been that I have a boyfriend named Magnus, who is the hero in uh, the first hero in my Soul and Bride series. My kids even say to my husband, oh, well, you better be careful. She might be going with Magnus tonight, which is hilarious. So he was just this ultimate to alpha To you, male. not to your husband, maybe. Yeah, he found it funny, too. Um, he, so he's just this ultimate hero. He's, you know, he's strong, he's passionate, he's loyal, but underneath all of that strength is, is a guy with a heart of gold who's willing to go out there and... Um, do whatever it takes to win his lady over, even if it's, you know, she's a vegetarian and everybody in his, his clan eats meat. <laughs> you know, he wants to help her make mushroom pasties. And um, so that being said, he was my favorite until I wrote Duncan's story, which is this book, because I made him into Magnus times like 20. I gave this guy this horrible, horrible background. He is the reason his entire family and clan is dead. And he is really struggling with that. So on top of having all these awesome qualities, he's got a lot of demons inside that he has to figure out. And I think that that was why he became my favorite, because in the end, he was able to forgive himself, which was really hard. In yours. My favorite, I actually wrote a blog post about this a week ago. Our, our theme for the month was heroes, and, and that's it. And you have to find some topic to talk about. And my my... My subject was why I want to sleep with all of my heroes. <laughs> because I truly believe that you write guys that you yourself would want to fall for because that makes it more believable. Maybe that's just, maybe I'm a lazy writer, but I would genuinely fall for all the heroes I write. And my favorite is from Friends to Lovers, which is a British Viscount. So right there, I'm in love with the accent, which is not why he was my favorite. Actually, that was a lot of work because I had to research uh, British slang to make sure even though you're reading the words on the page, you could hear a British accent and, and voice in your head. But he's this really great guy to date. He knows how to show a woman a good time. He is charming and funny and handsome and, well, I'm rich, too, so I'm thinking this would be the ultimate guy to date. Now, in real life, could I have snagged this man? Oh, my gosh, no. Not at all. And would I want him? Because he's dated about 800 women in a row. No. But he was so much fun to write that it, it made it all worthwhile. Because he was, he was a delight. And I'm sad not to write him anymore. And his name was Gibson Moore? Yes. And he I quite liked him, too. He I was a delight. <laughs> I liked him a lot. And your Leo was my favorite out of all of your heroes, which means you have to like come up with one that's more awesome than him, so you've now set the bar super-duper high. 
We are going to go ahead and do some readings for you now to give you uh, to give you a little feel for what it is we do. And a while back, you all pretty much said you liked strong women in one way or another as a heroine. And the readings we're going to do about the heroines are essentially something that highlights their strength or their sassiness or their internal struggles. And you'll get to hear our spins on it to see uh, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Who wants to start? I'll start. All right. I spent three hours this morning trying to pick a scene from this book because, like I said before, the, the heroine Heather is just totally insane, so it was hard to pick just one, but I finally found one that I think I hope you enjoy. I want to find William Wallace. He couldn't help it. The laugh escaped him in a short burst and then grew into some maniacal cackle she'd had before. Find Wallace? Whatever for? he asked between chuckles. Heather's cheeks had brightened into two flames. You're impossible. She swatted at him, which only made her blanket dip low on one creamy shoulder. This is why I didn't want to tell you. But Duncan had stopped laughing because he'd seen that shoulder, and she'd yet to realize that it was still showing. One freckle sat dead center in it. He fell forward, pressing his lips to the tiny beauty mark and inhaling the scent of her skin. Heather gasped and pushed against him weakly. Don't, she whispered. Duncan pulled his mouth from her skin, not because he wanted to, but because he didn't want to scare her away. Wallace is not an easy man to find, he said. I know it. My brother said he was going to be back in Glasgow, though. We're not going to Glasgow. I know. Is that why you, were, why you came so willingly with me? Because you thought I might take you closer to Wallace? A spear of jealousy drove through his gut. Are you in love with him? He couldn't help the hint of disgust. Wallace was a great and powerful man, no doubt. Brave and hardy, what this country needed in its war against the English. But Duncan would have had the same reaction toward the thought of her loving any other man besides him. Devil take it. Duncan wanted Heather to love him. Pollocks. She crinkled her pert little nose and shook her head, her eyes narrowing. Nay, of course not. How could you think such a thing? Then why do you need to find him? Because I want to fight, of course. Duncan swallowed, the breath taken from his lungs. His relief at hearing her say she wasn't in love with Wallace was strong, and yet his shock at hearing she wanted to get herself killed rocked him to the core. Fight? He prayed he hadn't heard her correctly. Yes, I want to fight for our freedom. I want to convince Wallace to reconcile himself to our cause again, to ask for his position as guardian of Scotland back. We were never so strong as we were with him. Duncan took a step away from her, somehow able to keep himself balanced, even though she'd shaken him. You're a political little chit, aren't you? She tugged a blanket tighter around her and shrugged. I'd not thought of myself that way particularly, but I guess you could say that. You'd not last a day. Heather lifted her chin, jutting it forward in a slow obstinacy. How dare you say such a thing? "'Tis the truth. The men would eat you alive. "'There are plenty of women who've been there before me "'that have held positions in politics. "'My brother Ronan's wife, Juliana, for one. "'The Bruce's sister. Have you met her? "'The woman scared him. "'Of course I have. She's a gem. "'A gem?' Duncan snorted. "'A black diamond sharpened into a blade "'and thrust within a man's gut. "'Heather's reaction was swift and fierce, "'and he didn't even see it coming. "'She closed the disc between them "'and socked him in the gut. "'Like that?' she ground out. (laughs) That's like her personality. And I, I chose a scene from his point of view so you could see what she looked like from another perspective. That's great. I'm going to jump ahead and go okay. next as I play with my Kindle to make sure it, it works here. It's not... It, oh, for the readings, we'll, we'll use the microphones. How's that? Mm-hmm. All right, what you need to know... Is that better? Can you hear me now? 
What you need to know as the backstory of my book is it is the Christmas novella, Tinsel My Heart, and the hero hates Christmas, and he's talking to his high school sweetheart many a year after high school. You're right, by the way. I've got a permanent spruce tree up my ass about the month of December, but I shouldn't take it out on the entire world. They were going to be living and breathing all things holly and jolly for the next few weeks. She had to get to the bottom of his holiday issues, or the season of celebration would send the cast into a season of antidepressants and ugly crying. Turn the page. I know the, uh, Becca searched for the right word, commercialism of Christmas, the emphasis on gifts, was hard on you growing up. But that was a long time ago. Why are you still so bitter? Money, I guess. Jack, I read the tabloids. She held a finger to his lips to hold off his comments. You can mock me later for that. Oh, I will. He popped a palmful of fried cheese curds into his mouth. Eyelids shut, he moaned with a look of bliss on his face. Bliss that could easily be interpreted as orgasmic. A jolt of awareness. Eagerness? Shuddered through Becca, as if she'd slugged back a shot of sexual caffeine. Jack looked dark and dangerous these days. Just the kind of man a woman fantasized about at night. About having in between her flannel sheets about not needing flannel sheets anymore, not with a man like Jack to keep her warm on those long Minnesota nights. Becca grabbed the coffee cup and drained it, fast, hoped it would explain the red flesh she felt heating her cheeks. They are as good as I remember, maybe even better, which is kind of amazing. Almost nothing lives up to your expectations after ten years. A long, measured look across the table at Becca. Almost. Jack drew the word out slowly. Was he hitting on her? In the middle of the mini apple of all places? Or was Becca so wound up by his mere leather-clad presence that if he quoted tax code, she'd interpret it as a come-on? One kiss, one accidental kiss, didn't mean anything. People kissed all the time without it leading to an actual date. Or or sex. He'd never made a single move on her in high school, no matter how badly she wished for it to happen. Now Jack Whitaker, famous movie director, undoubtedly had his pick of models and actresses. Why would he bother hooking up with someone so undecidedly glamorous? Becca nibbled the corner of a cheese curd. Obsessing over Jack was an old habit she shouldn't fall back into, an indulgence best saved for later. Right now, she needed to decrypt why all things merry and bright made him so mad. Look, I'm pretty sure you can afford to give all your friends Rolex watches for Christmas nowadays. Money's clearly not a sore point for you anymore. I think any therapist would tell you that you can't let your childhood dictate the man you are now. Wow, guess I've really been an asshole if after a couple of hours in my company you're sentencing me to therapy. I didn't mean... Becca reconsidered correcting him. Sometimes the ends justified the means. Yes, you're so far off the rails with your holiday hatred, I think you've got two options. Either see a therapist or talk to me. He quirked his lips to the side. How much do you charge? Half your cheese curds? Deal. With his knife, he separated the golden brown clusters into two piles. And for your information, I don't need to be bribed into talking to you, Becca. I've got a feeling you're better therapy for me than someone with a string of letters after their name. (laughs) Well, I thought about reading to you guys um, from Poison Kisses, which is my Greek mythology series um, in which my heroine is a... um, nymph of the underworld and she's pretty badass with a with a knife and she's pretty tough Uh, but i think i'm going to read clara because what one of the things we wanted to talk about is sort of the role reversal and the evolution of romances and in this story it's really my heroine who is resisting love so um oh uh 
I've lost it. All those post-its. All those post-its. I do <laughs> have it marked. What's going on? There it is. Okay. <clears throat> uh, I wasn't happy to wake up alone this morning, Clara. More specifically, I wasn't happy to wake up without you. And I realized how I poured my heart out to you like a sap last night. And you didn't say anything at all. It occurred to me that you may not share my feelings. Well, if that's what occurred to you, then you're a fool, Leo Vanderberg. Don't toy with me, Clara. I'll make you love me if I have to. But I need to know how you feel about me. I've been pretending all my life that everything was fine. So why shouldn't I just go on pretending? But the way Leo is looking at me now, so earnestly, I don't have the heart to pretend for one more moment. How do I feel about you? I love you, Leo. He starts to smile, but falters when he sees my expression. Well, you couldn't look any less thrilled about it. And I promptly burst into tears. Because it's awful. I can't imagine why anyone would ever want to be in love. I, I look at you and my belly flutters. I haven't been able to eat more than a few bites since the day I met you. I can't sleep because whenever I close my eyes, I remember how it feels to be touched by you. I daydream about you when I should be working, and sometimes I even start shivering just at the sound of your name. It's like I've fallen ill with something that could be fatal. The tension goes out of Leo's shoulders, and he laughs. Then he rises to his feet and enfolds me in an embrace, patting my back. There, there. It can't be all that bad. It is, I sob. I don't want to be in love. Don't you know what I do for a living? Tomorrow afternoon, I have to pretend to drown in a lily pond so some handsome actor can rescue me and kiss me passionately. I have to be Clara Cartwright, fiery, fearless, independent as a cat. I've never loved any man, and I never needed one, but I need you so badly that I think it's going to kill me. He's grinning now. You do have a flair for the dramatic, don't you, darling? <laughs> And that's Clara for you. <laughs> Leah, do you want to go? Sure. Um, these are for our guests. I well, <laughs> they snooze, they lose. Yeah, we should. So I have. All right, it's I have a couple of choices that I can make here. Thing is, I don't want to give away too much, but. Um, would you rather have a... Okay, the well, this is a book. How are you not going to give it away? I know, I'm giving it away. Well, all right, so I won't give that one away. I'll, I'll read another one. Um, this gives you an idea of... The one that I was thinking about was more kick-ass, um, but this one is more indicative of who Emma's character is. Um, Cooper of the Golden Heart has <laughs> befallen some terrible times in this book. He really he gets put through the ringer, and one of those things is that He's, um, uh, Emma has a couple of nemesises, so I guess that's nemesi, <laughs> um, who are out to get her. And in order to do that, they, they are like, well, you have this boyfriend who's perfect in every way, so we think we'll, you know, we'll, we'll hex him on top of everything else that's happening. But so even though she loves him, and even though he's been allured, which is the name of the book, um, to be taken over by this, um, this nemesis, one of her nemesis, um, Emma still hangs in there and she's willing to do whatever it takes to, to save him because she's ultimately a very good person. So they've just discovered that 
this allurement. They've, um, Emma and her brother Jack have just discovered it and they are trying to save Cooper. This is in the midst of trying to save him. Um, okay, so, but Jack's already sprinting up the stair to stairs toward me. Extending his grip, he thrusts the magical items at me. Now what? Get me some matches and keep Cooper out of the bathroom. I turn and amble toward the hall bath, close the door and depress the lock. Who am I kidding? That's not gonna hold him for long. Spinning around, I look for anything that might buy me a minute or two. The tall, narrow wicker, wicker hamper, hamper in the corner is my best bet. Moving as fast as I can, I slide across the tile floor, then tilt it toward the door, wedging its top beneath the knob, just in time, too, because Cooper has already started knocking. Emma, let me in, he twists the knob. No, you need to trust me on this. You have been allured. You can't see things for how they really are. No, you need to trust me. You think you know everything, and you have all the answers, but you don't know squat. What Tania and I have is pure. She is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I won't let you destroy that paper. I can't live without her. His, face, his voice is frantic as he pounds on the door. I lay the flannel, pop it on the dry sink, face up, and then spread out the naming paper, making sure the two strands of their hair lay across the top. The red and black writing stares up at me, an ugly indictment of how far Tania will go to get what, to what she wants. Love me or die. That's it, isn't it? Cooper will literally die if he doesn't love her. I don't know where Tania got found such a sick, monstrous charm or why she thought it would be okay to hex someone like this or if she re even realized the danger she put Cooper in. But I'm not going to see, but I'm going to see that she never gets to do it again. I don't care if it's my last act of hoodoo, but I will write this wrong. So, Tough girl. That is Emma. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is, it's Emma. <laughs> it's Emma. I love her. Second only to her, um, her Gullah Hoodoo mentor, who's um, Miss Delia, who is 97 years old of, and probably 90 pounds of the biggest kick ass you'll ever encounter. She's, <laughs> she's tough. So. She's a scene stealer. She is. She's Miss Delia. So I'm going to read from the book that comes out on Tuesday, Hard As It Gets, and um, the, the backstory to this particular scene is that uh, my heroine, uh, Becca Merritt, has come in as her, the, her hero, her love interest, Nick, has just gotten into a fist fight with one of his um, Special Forces teammates who he's called in to help Becca find her um, brother who's been kidnapped. Um, and and uh, Nick has not seen these four former Special Forces teammates for a year since they were drummed out of the Army. Um, and so um, Nick's got a busted cheek, and she's a nurse, so she's tending to him, and, uh, and this is what happened. Tell me where it hurts, she says to Nick. Man, you could have heard a pin drop as quiet as the room had gotten, and good. Because if one of them uttered a single smart-ass comment, she was likely to lose her shit. Sparing about four seconds, she took a moment to glare at his so-called teammates, all collected around the far end of the bar watching her. Shane and Edward's expressions were somber and serious, and Beckett's head was hanging on his shoulders. Somebody get some ice for Beckett's knuckles. The big guy's head whipped up, and he studied her as Shane made for the fridge. Softening her touch, Becca palpitated the edge of the scar tissue, Nick sucked in a breath through his nose, and his muscles flinched and clenched. What happened here? Gunshot wound times two, one penetrating, one not. Fractured pelvis and perforated bowel that healed. Lingering nerve damage, he said as if by rote, and she guessed it was. It'll be okay. 
She nodded, swallowing down the heartache and stream of comments that might embarrass him in front of his guys. You don't look okay. You can't even take a deep breath. I'm so sorry you got hurt. And geez, not just hurt, that litany of injuries would have required multiple surgeries, a lot of pain, and a difficult rehabilitation. I'm just going to clean up your face then. <coughs> At the sink, she scrubbed her hands thoroughly. Shane found a plastic bag, filled it with ice, and tossed it to Beckett, who caught it in the hand that hadn't just had a head-on collision with a steel box. The older man returned with a white metal kit in his hand. Found it, he said. Drying her hands, she gestured to the bar. Miguel set it down and opened it for her. Average height, he was a bit full in the middle, with graying dark hair and warm-toned skin. I'm sure you're sorry about this whole situation, he said, with a kindness about him that drew her in. If Nick trusted the man, then so did she. Me too, but I appreciate that you helped Nick today. Unexpectedly, Shane stepped up and laid out everything she'd need, gauze, alcohol wipes, and a few packages of strips. He opened a package of gloves for her and held it out. Thanks, she said, donning the gloves and appreciating that his actions allowed her to keep her hands sterile. way he was looking between the supplies and Nick's blood, it was like he wanted to help. As she got to work, the weight of everyone's observation pressed in on her, but she couldn't think of them right now or how badly she wanted to take a few heads off. Beckett's because he'd hurt Nick, and the others because they hadn't done anything to intervene, which was just as bad in her book. In front of Nick again, she held his handsome, tired face with one hand while she cleaned it with the other. His gaze lit on her, and she knew he was watching her work, but she kept her eyes on the task at hand. She hadn't really expected to say the words when they started coming out, but once they began, she felt their rightness down deep. Nick asked you guys here as a favor to me. He apparently did so knowing some sort of tension existed between you. Had I known this would be the cost to him, I would have insisted he tell you not to come. She opened the alcohol wipes and slipped them from their sleeves. Gonna sting. Her gaze flickered to his eyes, which bored into hers with blazing intensity. He didn't react to the application of the alcohol. Once it was clean and dry, Becca pulled the split skin together and applied the butterflies. Seething, she shook her head. I don't know what the problem is between all of you. That's your business. But my brother's safety, that's my business. So if you guys can't keep your shit together, then feel free to go, because we need more of this like we need more holes in our head. She pressed two strips over the ends of the three, holding the wound closed. There, ripping off her gloves, she stepped away. So I love when a heroine can just put these, you know, big guys in their place, <laughs> and that was a moment where it was needed. All right, how many of you saw the movie Romancing the Stone? Uh, do you remember at the very beginning before she goes off on her string of misadventures with Michael Douglas when she, at the very, very beginning, she finishes her book and she's sitting there and she's using an actual typewriter. My God, that dates this movie. And she's got the, the Kleenexes next to her stacked and her hair looks like she hasn't combed it in six days. That was kind of a typical picture of a writer. On the other side, did you see Something's Gotta Give with Jack Nicholson and, 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 uh, no, 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 the chick from Annie Hall, Diane Keaton, Diane Keaton, where she has this amazing beach house in the Hamptons that probably costs more than this building around us, and her office is serene and white and beautiful with the ocean outside. Do any of us have lives like either one of those? Uh, minus the typewriter, I've had days when my hair is a mess. Yeah, I'm asking because I wanted to talk about writing quirks, what we have, what we don't. <coughs> if anybody has a fun thing you want to share to give them a more realistic viewpoint of what a romance writer's day is actually like. Lee and I write in Panera every day. We have like a favorite booth in the Panera. 
Yeah. That we, we sit across from each other in our booth, and sometimes we never talk all the whole day because we're working, and other times we can't stop talking and we get no work done. So that's probably one of the biggest quirks that uh, we have. I, I'm really a have laptop, will write anywhere kind of person. Um, background noise doesn't really bother me. In fact, I write most of the time with one song on repeat constantly, just the same song over and over and over again. One, one song for each book. Um, and so I can, I can really write just about anywhere and be able to, to get into it and concentrate. So that's probably my biggest quirk is Panera and the song. Do you have a quirk to go with it? Word. Just word. Yeah, I just write in word. Not, not everybody does, but for me that works pretty good. Did it start like, they used to have like, um, just for writing, like, like novels, they used to have social other processes. It's not like this is for, it's gotten yeah, I, I think for a lot of people, Word has gotten advanced enough, but um, some others use a, do use a special software, and I've shown that they'll probably mention it here. I use Scrivener. Um, I think Christy does as well. Mm -hmm. I use Scrivener too. <coughs> I use Word. I mean, I write in Word, but I use Scrivener as a tool. I, I write, I plot and write in Scrivener, and um, because of the weirdness about track changes, if you, mm -hmm. when you're, going back and forth with um, edits to your editor who send you send those in Word and so once you go from Scrivener to Word there's no going back there's no way to get back so once you've left <coughs> you've left <laughs> Scrivener you can't bring them back in um, those track changes from back from the editor so that's always a sad po that point is. for me because then I'm like ah because in Scrivener you can chop it up however you want and you can organize things however you want it's very easy to find things and then when you're back to just one big giant 300 page document, it's harder to sift through. I mean, you could still do find and replace, but But if you're asking because, are you interested in writing? Yeah. You don't need to spend money. You can do everything in Word. Mm -hmm. But if you want to spend any money in the world on a tool to help you, the $40 for Scrivener, yeah. I think many of us here at the table would say, yay, do it. And there are times you can get it 50% off too because they often do lots of promotions. My other thing that I need to have when I'm really seriously writing is I always have to have my iced tea from Panera, which <laughs> is a special concoction that I put together with one sweet and low and four slices of lemon. I just have to have that. <laughs> or the words don't get written. We're not kidding when we say yeah, these I are our requirements. It. It's like the elixir. And then if I'm really writing, sometimes I'll... I have to have that, and then I'll give me, myself an extra boost of caffeine with Diet Pepsi, but it's really my, my iced tea. But the other thing is, I'm ashamed to say that I needed to buy a program called the Freedom Program. <laughs> For $10, I paid this fantastic program to take me off the internet. <laughs> so I can tell it for a certain number of hours how long I want to be off the internet, and then I'm free. And I don't have Facebook saying, please, just, just check to see what else is, someone else is doing so that I really block myself out. And that's so pathetic because... You can't just turn off the Wi-Fi. No, because then I know how to turn it back on. <laughs> yeah, but then I'll see her over there on her phone. I know. <laughs> I'm doing? like, she still chats with oh, us all I'm the time. What? <laughs> but that's so much harder that it's just a deterrent. Yeah. So. I have my own office. Um, that I do not write in. Huh. Uh, very sad. But when you moved, you got an office finally. What do you I mean know, you don't use it? I can't write in there. What? I don't know why. You were so she excited. has a beautiful office. Yeah. I think it's because I started out writing in my kitchen. I just, 
I have to write in, I either sit at my island or I sit on the couch or I sit in the dining room. I cannot go near my office when I'm writing at all. Do you use and it at least for promos so yes. you can say you're getting some use That's out of it? That's all I do in there is, all I do is promotion. Actually, every thousand words, I get up from my laptop and I go into my office on the desktop and then I do some promotion, check Facebook and all that stuff because I have to have no internet as well while I'm writing. Um, I also have to have music. Um, I usually listen to Braveheart uh, soundtrack mm -hmm. and, um, and other like epic movie soundtracks like Lord of the Rings and things like that. Mm -hmm. It has to be very loud and blasting. I can't have anyone talking to me. Um, it, it's just, I don't know, it's, I have these little quirks. Yeah. It just doesn't work. If anyone's talking to me, if any children are home or my dog is bothering me, like it just isn't flowing right. Um, I don't have a tea thing. <laughs> I do like to have a drink, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter what it is. Do you brush your hair? I always have my hair in a ponytail, and I'm usually wearing yoga pants and <laughs> flip-flops or sneakers or something. I just realized another one. If I pull an all-nighter to write, I have to have Cheez-Its. Because in the middle of the night, there's this, there's this period in the middle of the night that's very hard to get through when you pull an all-nighter. But if you I never send Cheez me Cheez-Its when I'm up all night with you. Well, that's because they're my house and you're at your house. Yeah. If you came over, you could share Now I'm going to know that I should stock Christy up on Cheez-Its for the next time. several all-nighters with me when she's been reading immediately behind me. I, I want to share. I will get Cheez-Its right, for the I next one. Do you have questions about writing? Wait, wait, you didn't, say, you didn't say yours. Oh, um, well, just for the record, I usually brush my hair. But when, <laughs> when I'm on, you know, a few days before the deadline, um, I don't do that or anything else but sit at the computer for, I don't know, 18 hours, hours, hours. in a row. Um, and, and I'm very influenced by music, so I, I like to listen to music when I'm writing, but if it's the wrong music for what I'm writing, it can be very distracting. I was actually trying to write at Eliza's house, oh, yeah. and she's got Braveheart on, and there's this like very serious music, doom and battle, and I'm writing a dance scene in a disco, and I can't, I, I, like, I'm, I'm trying to have my characters dance and have fun, and all I'm hearing is this funeral dirge. It was horrible, so... Uh, I, I have to, you know, have have the right mood. Music she pulled out. She did get some ear <laughs> ear things and, and earbuds and put those in her ears. It was I have funny. I have a favorite quirk of yours though because oh, okay. it goes against the whole writer non brushing the hair and mm -hmm. yoga pants thing. Oh, okay. What do you wear every day? Oh, shoes. Oh, yeah. I must wear shoes. <laughs> I cannot work without my shoes on. See, I take mine off even at Panera, do which you is really? yeah. I, I have wear to. shoes. I mean, I don't I wear tell them socks. that. My God, but I do. No, I, I mean, I have socks on. I cannot think with the shoes on. I just see. To can't. me, shoes mean business. When no. the shoes come off, I'm done for the day. <laughs> no thinking is happening after that. No. The other thing I can't do, which I need to learn to maybe do, is I am um, in in awe of people who say, oh, I just wrote for an hour, you know, or then in the car at carpool, I write for 15 minutes, and then I can't do that. My brain cannot think when I know I have only choppy, choppy time. I, I need to know that I have, okay, I've got five hours to sink in, or eight hours, and then I can just fully immerse myself in that world. I can't, I can't do those, like, little tiny snippets. I used to have to do that, because I had all these kids at my house. Um, they were mine. <laughs> they were so distracting so I had to learn how to write in very short increments and and that was like the way I did it for years and years and now 
I can't do it anymore. And like, if they start talking to me, I'm like, you guys ruined everything. I can't write the rest of the week. And I'm done. Yesterday, I was in heaven because they were all gone all day. And I, I wrote for like seven hours straight. I got 7,000 words out of the way. And I was like, Woo! it was glorious. Which is a phenomenal glorious. number of words for, for fiction, by the way. I mean, nonfiction, most people can write at a faster pace. But when you're inventing a whole world on the fly, uh, 7,000 words is an incredible amount. Well, let's, let's do a, a quick, question. What's the most number of words you've written in a day? I think it was 6,500 in a day. Eliza? That was yesterday, seven. I mean, I'm on deadline major. It's bad. Laura? She's done like That's 40. Like, <laughs> I mean, I know the answer, but. Yeah. Uh, 15. <laughs> yeah. Oh Stephanie, just superhuman. Um, I, mean, I did 10 on one of these stories, actually, in one day. I was, I was on a roll. I was really loving it. See, she wrote 10 because she was having such a good time. Yeah. I wrote 15,000 because I was in trouble. You had in, to. In, in big trouble. trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I feel, I, I think the most I've ever written a day is like 5,000, and I was perfectly content with that, but now I'm not. <laughs> it's not fun. I mean, <laughs> I was like, if I don't get these 7,000 done, I'm dead. Not a day, like, like one it's due. sitting. Mine was two and a half hours. Okay. Oh, what? <laughs> you wrote five thousand words in two two hours. Two and a half. <laughs> okay, that's crazy. That's yeah. good. For but me, that was that the whole. That was it. Day. It was done. Well, you know, it's different because category romance for me, I write faster because it's in it's contemporary. I don't have to build the world in the same way. So <gasps> that I can do. I mean, there's research still, but it's not the same kind of. It's not the same for me in my own brain. So I can shoot out a thousand words an hour without a problem with that. This, this was maybe 800 words an hour maybe. Um, this one fought me every hour of the way. I don't think I broke, there, I, there, in the whole entire time that I was writing this book, there were only two times that I broke a thousand words in an hour, the, two. And I felt like such a loser. But most of my hours were maybe five to six hundred words. We bleed for you guys. We do this for you. <laughs> <laughs> you, you had a question. I, yeah. mm -hmm. But you have a question. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm doing nano for the very first Yay! time. Yay! I'd like to know mm -hmm. what your experience is, best or worst experience with it, and how you broke it up when you were working full time. Mm -hmm. NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, is the month in November. And there's a website, nanorimo.org. And it's a giant group writing project to try to write 50,000 words in the month of November. Um, and lots of people do it. It's a good way to get into it because it, it gives you like a community to write with, even if it's often a virtual community. And, and accountability, which is hard for people sometimes making the transition from dabbling to a profession. Yeah. You need the accountability. You know, even before you have a contract deadline to write to, you have to start getting in that mode. And now we just all have contracts pressing down on us constantly. And the accountability is there the quite a bit. I, the thing that I like about NaNo is they tell you exactly how many words you have to write every day mm -hmm. in order to hit it. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't sign up for it this year, but I have done it the, each of the last four or five years. And I think I've only won it twice. To win means that you get at least 50,000 words. Um, I think that the key to NaNo is the same as the key to being a successful writer, which is write every day. Um, and for Nano, you know what your goal is. 
and I think one of the ways to be really successful at Nano is to write with other people, even if you have to do it virtually. And probably one of the best ways to do that is if you're on Twitter, you can look for the hashtag 1K1HR. It stands for 1,000 words in an hour. And they're essentially competitive writing sprints that you do with other people. And at the end of the hour, you all chime in with how many words you've written. And um, if you do two or three of those, you're probably going to hit just 1672 or whatever the, the word count is that you need for, for each day to hit 50,000. So that has been really useful for me when I've done Nano. And it's also been really useful just in general because that sort of accountability is, is very helpful. There was an author on NPR this morning writing some book about a 17-year-old who the big earthquake comes that, that takes out California into the ocean and he was on a cruise ship and then he falls off of it. I don't remember the title. It was bizarre. But he said he got his writing, his, his work ethic, he, he considers himself a working class writer, which I'm like, what the heck is that? And he said his dad worked at the San Diego Zoo for 25 years and he never took a single sick day. And he got up every day and clocked in and went to work. And he considers that that is what he has to do as a writer every single day, not even taking weekends off, which, you know, we all take days off. It's, it's still a job. You still want to go and have a vacation. But every single day, he essentially clocks in, and he writes something every day, and that is, that is what he considers the key to his success. And I think that's what, yes, for Nano, for anything, that, again, is what you have to do. And you mentioned that you're working full-time, too. So... For people that are working full-time, you have to make that time in the afternoon or like the evenings or the weekend or during your lunch break, after midnight. What time do you get up in the morning? I usually get up around 10, but I am not a morning Okay, writer. so you're good like after work then. That's what we I all write then. My way. <laughs> uh, when I was working full-time um, and I had two young, young, pretty young, young kids at, at the beginning of my writing career, so get them home after the end of the workday, do the whole dinner, bath time thing, and then the kids would be in bed 7.38, and then that's when I would start my writing day. So then I, I usually would write till 1 or 2 in the morning, because so, I need those big chunks of time um, too. But um, I wrote a post for the USA Today blog um, a, a couple months ago, What I Gave Up to Be a Romance Writer was the name of it. Uh, and I gave up a lot of TV I hardly watch any TV now. I have a couple of things that I can't go without, but I don't watch as nearly as much TV as I used to. <coughs> um, I don't garden the way I used to. I used to be totally into gardening and planting flowers, and I always had things everywhere. I don't do it at all anymore. Um, so there, you know, there I've replaced some hobbies with this one, particularly because this started out sort of as a hobby for me. I mean, I, I hoped it could be something professional, but at the beginning of your writing career, you never know. Um, I've just quit my job at the Naval Academy to do this full-time. Um, and so that presents its own other set of challenges when you're doing it full-time because then you're like, oh, I have nothing else to do, right? But you still have to, like, buckle down and treat it as a work day. Do you believe in writer's block? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> that could not be more unanimous <laughs> if it tried. I, ha I heard the best definition of writer's block ever from a teacher of mine called Maureen McHugh. And she said, um, writer's block is the inability to allow yourself to write crap. And, and that's what it is. You're, you, you could write, but what's coming out of your head doesn't sound right to you. So your internal editor is, is stopping you. So if you just let yourself do it, um, it shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, 
That's a great. That's a neat technique. And and that was a good question in spite of our emphatic denial. (laughs) I mean, it is a job. We have to sit down and and show up and get those pages out every day. This could lead into a different hour-long discussion on plotting versus pantsing. But um, a lot of advice for aspiring writers is if you do find yourself in writer's block, it means you haven't figured out where you're going with the story, perhaps. And if you figure that out ahead of time, then it's easier to get the words out. We all have varying uh, views on that particular thing, but it is a tool that can help you. But no, writer's block is an excuse, and if you're really serious, you just write right through it. And I have a happy nano story in that this book, In Bed with the Opposition, was written during NaNoWriMo, and it was published by Entangled. It's a contemporary romance, and um, and it was really great. It was a to write just a contemporary romance straight through because it was something that I hadn't done before. And Nano gave me a chance to experiment because you're only, you're, you're dedicating a month. And we can, we can all um, put things on hold for a month. That's probably the longest that people can really, you know, go without cooking for their family or doing laundry <laughs> or brushing their hair. But, you know, <clears throat> it's just a month. Yes, question. All the way up to 50. It's even darker. Yeah. It well, again, it's a product of its time period. It was huge at the time because it pushed the envelope, much like Fifty Shades pushed the envelope for some people now. Um, for some people. Let's be clear that there was a whole erotica genre before that book came out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. But but it opened doors to some people and it and pushed it. it. So yes, yeah. Valley of the Dolls was its shocker of the day, and then it didn't just shock people. Once the door was open, other books followed and 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 followed along. It's kind of like in television how on I Love Lucy they were required by the network censors to have separate beds because they could not possibly show a couple sharing a bed on network TV and now think about what you see on television. Once that door is open, everything floods through it. So that's how our, that is, that, that is one reason that our genre has evolved. Whose name was the first label on TV since, you know? Who's but what? Whose label was the first label on television? That's an awesome trivia question. I do not know. Barbara Eden? Barbara Eden. Oh, no, you don't know the answer? You're just asking? I was just asking. Oh, oh. oh I don't know. <laughs> Somebody Google it, quick. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing probably Barbara Eden. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, no. I believe she was not allowed to show yeah. her belly button. Very specifically, it was not her. Her costume was designed to not show it because yeah. of that. That's the way. I know Dylan's out there. That's even like, you know, a lot of females, they couldn't be a really sexist. So I'm just wondering, whenever the censors decided to Maybe Charlie's Angels, who knows? <laughs> Excellent trivia question. <clears throat> um, and speaking of how things evolved, what are the upsides of the evolution of things getting sexier in our genre, and what are the downsides? Do you guys want to talk about that a little? You know, as a, as a young adult writer, I mean, my books are targeted towards young adults, but 
lots of adults read them. But um, as a YA writer and as a mom, I, there's a tension for me with how spicy things get. Um, you know, I wrote this with my then 11 or 12 year old in mind. She's now almost 14, the first one. Um, she certainly can read things that are a little bit more mature than when I first started writing them, but she was, has always been a voracious reader. So, I, you know, it's, it's different in young adult. There, and, and the range is quite significant. There's very, very sweet, and then there's borderline, well, no, there's, there's actual sex in YA, usually never to titillate at all. It's, it's because it's in the service of the story, um, one way or another. Or when it is described, it's, it's very basic and it's maybe a paragraph and it's just basically to let the reader know this happened. Day. Yeah, and then <laughs> next day, whether you're, you're okay about it or not okay about it or, you know. So for me, that's a tension for me. Um, it's less so for when I write uh, romance for adults because adults do that. But I don't know. I. Sometimes as a reader I read it and I'm like, you know, this was written for a 14-year-old kid or this is for a 15-year-old kid, but these kids are very precocious. But then at the same time I think kids are really doing this stuff. So, <laughs> you know, so it's, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a tension for me. I, I struggle with it. See, um, I think it's, a, it's probably a bigger issue one yeah. way or the other in YA. I mean, I, my daughter is now, my older daughter is now nine, and she's a very, very precocious reader. She can read way beyond her age. And she comes up to me in Barnes & Noble one day with a book, and she's like, Mom, can I get this? And I take it out. It's a, it's a uh, paranormal YA by PC Cast. Mm. Randomly open. Randomly open. My, the first thing my eyes fall on is that the two female characters are talking about getting a clip piercing. <laughs> Close the book. <laughs> I don't think this is the right one for you for right now. Actually, this book may be never, but... Um, She's a really but, good author, by the way. But I, I've heard nothing. I have not read the series, but I... Yeah, so, I mean, I think Leah's right when you're, when you're talking about books that are aimed towards younger people. And, of course, this is totally on the parents to be engaged with what the kids are reading, right? I don't have a problem with people writing the stuff because it is happening, and telling all the different kinds of stories there are to be told, I'm totally behind. I think for, in the adult, in the adult romance world, um, I tend to write very explicit and usually quite lengthy sex scenes. Um, and delightful. And thank you for that. And, um, but for me, that those scenes are very integral to the, to the character and emotional development that's going on. And, and so they're not just there for the sake of, you know, hey, it's time to you know, get the reader hot and bothered right now, so let's throw in a sex scene. Um, they, I, they, for me, they're very plot and character relevant. But, but sidebar, in Hard As You Can, remember when you said, I'm, I'm at page 100 and X, and they haven't had sex yet, is that a problem? Yeah, I was... And, uh, and you wouldn't have asked that question 10 years ago, necessarily. That's true. But today, that's you're true. like, uh-oh, I am this far into the book, and are the readers going to expect to have seen sex by now? Yeah. Yeah, I, that's a really good point. Um, I think that I think that there is an expectation in, in much of romance that you're going to have sex scenes, um, but I think that a lot of romance still has, particularly the category romance, because they're much shorter novels. You really only get time for like one big sex scene, and it's like the penultimate, cli you know, right. 
climactic moment <laughs> of the relationship. Um, you might not have time in a 50 or 60,000 word novel to have a bunch of sex scenes. Um, but in single title, full length books, you expect to have more of them. And, they, and one probably happens a bit earlier, but uh, you always have to do with what's right for the characters. And in this case, it wasn't sex right away. I will say that point. Um, in, in the genre as a whole, usually books that are classified as sweet have closed door sex. In other words, they let you know that the characters are headed into the bedroom, but you don't see anything. And so th that's considered sweet. And my books, I just had one come out in October, and a lot of the reviews for it are calling it a very sweet romance because uh -huh. it has three very graphic, full-blown makeout scenes and one sex scene. And today, that is considered sweet. One sex scene is not enough. <laughs> and so I have been bumped down a level, even though it's graphic, it's there, it's in, it counts. Apparently, you need two or more to be normal. I think the evolution of the heat in romance is really interesting in terms of um, not so much how explicit things have gotten or not gotten, but in the nature of how the books are exploring consent. If you look at really old school romances like Kathleen Woodwist, there's a lot of ravishment. There's a lot of rape, pillaging, kidnapping. I mean, we apparently still have lots of kidnapping, yes. but um, <clears throat> but yeah, but um, but now. Uh, we spend a lot of time in the heroine's head at the crucial moment so that we understand um, that romances are becoming about an expression of female desire that is ex accepted and acceptable. It's, it's normalizing um, female sexuality in a way that I think is pretty healthy and sometimes non-threatening to readers um, who, who want to explore things that maybe they wouldn't do in their own life, but they want to read about it. So I think that's a pretty great development and um, I'm not going to say Fifty Shades is the best example of, of uh, perfectly healthy, consensual, uh, alternative sexuality relationship, but I, I will say that it has opened the door to mainstreaming those kinds of books so that the emphasis is now shifting towards, you know, what we're seeing a lot of explicit BDSM books where they have an agreement. We're seeing... Um, paranormal books where if the hero is doing something um, really bad, it's because he's a vampire, not a person, right? So, <clears throat> so there's ways that it's evolved to explore things in a way that I think is probably healthier. And I think that's a good segue into our next set of readings. These are featuring our heroes. We try to highlight a more vulnerable side to the hero that might not have been seen in the old school rape, pillage, kidnap heroes. You know, what, what, may, what turned them into a 21st century guy and, and shows that they do indeed have feelings and can talk about them and are not just dragging the woman off by the hair and shoving a wedding ring on her finger. Who Except would like Eliza's books. We should start. Her, let's just start with heroes you. are very evolved for the time period. This, it was really hard for me to find a scene because it is a historical. Um, and I do tend to write, I don't write like rape and stuff, but I do write a little bit more old school, I think. Um, so this in this scene, um, he's pretty much told her that where he's taking her and, and what's going to happen. Guilt soured Duncan's stomach. 
My family will triple the coin the Rosses have given you. They'll t- they can take care of themselves. We'd welcome the war, I promise you. Duncan shook his head and locked eyes with her, which were rimmed red. He resisted the urge to wipe the wetness from her cheeks. It's not the coin that holds me. He had plenty buried in the stone walls of the abbey. I've told you I had nothing to do with your family's slaughter, though I could have. I would have tried to stop it. You were barely old enough, if even born yet. He supposed he ought to tell her his weakness, where Lady Ross had him strictly by the bollocks. You see, if I don't deliver you, they'll burn my abbey and all those who reside inside it. He's a priest, by the way. I guess I should have mentioned that. Which makes it even worse. (laughs) Heather gasped. How can they? That will certainly condemn them all to hell. Duncan shrugged. They don't seem to care about that. They're fueled by rage and care not for the path they will follow in the afterlife, but only for the life of now. And you were the perfect man to see it done, level-headed, well-trained, and wanting revenge on my family? He shrugged again. She had the right of it. T'was the reason he'd agreed, but not the reason for carrying it out. Though the monks and prior angered him sometimes, he would never see them suffer. They'd taken him in when he'd had no one. They'd raised him, fed him, sheltered him, clothed him, educated him. Duncan was not sore enough about cold winter nights and stale bread to wish them harm. Never. If anything, he owed the church his life. They had toughened him up. He'd have perished with the rest of his family if not for them. We all do things for those we love that we cannot often explain, he answered. Love, Heather said, biting her lip and looking away. Something I'll never know if you give me up to those monsters. I'll be lucky to see the morning. She laughed bitterly. You see, as soon as you leave, they'll slit my throat. They'll deliver the mess- or you'll deliver the message to my family that they have me because you would know nothing otherwise, and you're a priest they can trust. All the while, I'll be rotting in a shallow grave if they even give me that much while they sharpen their blades in preparation for murdering my family. Shall I issue you my thanks now, or would you prefer it upon my deliverance? With each word she uttered, Duncan grew colder and colder until a numbness surrounded him. Visions of her lying in a grave, staring up at him, lifeless, made him shudder. One life for the lives of hundreds, he muttered, hating himself. I'm to be a sacrifice? He swallowed, cursing himself. Are the hundred men of the cloth at Puskarden to go in your stead? They will not abandon their abbey. Shadows covered her eyes, and she flicked her gaze away. I don't know. Death comes to us all, princess. The words sounded cold even to his own ears, and he was disgusted to have uttered them. You're cruel, she said, and rightly so. Heather leaned away from him, closer to the fire, as if she preferred to be burned than sit beside him. Hell, he'd rather be burned than ever have to say what he'd just said again. He wasn't a cruel man, wasn't the sort to let an innocent go to her death, and here he was, doing just that. Empathy bade him to beg her forgiveness, but his pride kept his tongue motionless. If he could have, he would have saved her from the fate he'd led her toward. But truly, how could he save the Abbey from destruction and not give her up to her enemy's hands? There was only one way, and it meant that Duncan had to forgive the family who destroyed his own. That meant giving up everything he'd stowed for practically the whole of his life. It meant approaching his own enemies and begging for help. Duncan wasn't a beggar, and he wasn't sure he could change who he was, even to save her life. from the first book in the series and um, at this point Emma has gone down to the beach because she's dealing with a lot there's a whole bunch of heavy stuff happening and um, part of that is is her thinking about this curse that she's found out that is hanging over Cooper's soul so um, of course she's trying to be alone but he's he sees her out there so he comes out 
Um, you know, you're not in this alone, he says. <coughs> I nod. Yeah, I know. Actually, I sort of am. Cooper grasped my arm. No, really, I'm here for you. He strokes a few stray hairs off my face and tucks them over my shoulder. He's staring directly into my eyes. I'm pretty sure I've stopped breathing. The other thing you need to know is that she still loves him from afar at this point. I nod, trapped in his consuming gaze. Uh, okay, he draws a huge breath. I've got a confession to make, Emmeline. My chest tightens. I need to confess too, but telling him about the Beaumont curse right now will definitely spoil the mood. I know I should tell him, but he's so beautiful, and he's never looked at me this way. The ethical debate rages, overloading my brain, so all I can manage in response is, uh-huh. <laughs> he cups my jaw in his, with his palm. I'm worried for you. That is so not where I hoped this was going. <laughs> oh, my brow furrows, and I pull away from his muscular but comforting hands. Look, I know I lost my cool earlier, and I'm fine, really. My voice drips with irritation. Maybe I should tell him now. He shakes his head. No, that didn't come out right. What I mean is, I find myself worrying about you a lot. The sincerity in his voice soothes the anger in my chest. Thanks. I'll be okay. He sighs, scratching his temple. Ugh. Aw, oh, heck, this is harder than I thought, he says out loud, then clears his throat. Um, what I'm trying to say is, you're pretty much on my mind every day, all day. Oh. Miss Delia and her stinking follow-me-boy charm. That powder must have worked its way into his sinuses because he's still feeling its effects, which totally sucks. I'd give anything for this to be real. Listen, I know that day in the museum was exciting and all, but believe me, it'll pass. Everything will go back to normal. Deep creases mar his handsome face. But what if I don't want things to be normal? I like thinking about you, worrying about your safety, caring about you. From the moment you got here this summer, I knew I wanted things to be different between us. His eyes turned down. I thought I sensed you did too. My heart seizes. Um, did you just say when I got here? Like, do you mean when Jack and I first came back south from... DC, I can barely force the words from my constricted throat, afraid to hope it's true. Cooper's lips curl into a hopeful half grin. Yeah, you were at your dad's wearing that funky skirt of yours and your hair was pulled up in a ponytail. I couldn't believe how pretty you were. Holy sticklewort. Cooper Boma likes me. I gulp, processing the words I've longed to hear for more than a year. This is way better than my fantasies. Um, really? My voice trembles with awe and my hands quake. All other thoughts flee my brain. The only thing I focus on is what's happening here in this moment now. He inches closer, his lips hovering near my mouth. Was I wrong? Did I misread you, Emmeline? <laughs> <clears throat> All right, so this is from Hard As It Gets again. Thank you. This is from Hard As It Gets again, and um, this is right after the hero and heroine have had sex. We're almost at the end of the book now. so. Um, and you heard Nick's litany of injuries before, so you'll understand uh, what's going on here. Can I ask you something, Becca says? His eyes flew open, the lashes tickling her stomach. Always. Um, how much did your back hurt? He released a long breath, his eyebrows making his displeasure at the topic clear. You could tell. 
She gave him a little smile, only because you made a face, not because of anything you did, which was all amazing, by the way. The corner of his lip quirked up. I didn't even think. He shrugged his big shoulder. Being with you today was the first time since he pressed his face into her stomach with a groan. It was probably just because of the fight with Beckett. Wait. Was he really saying she was the first person he'd had sex with in over a year? The first time you had sex since you were shot, she finished for him? He rested his chin on her stomach, and his eyes were a shade less confident than usual. Yeah. Inside, she was jumping up and down at the news, but she didn't want him to feel any more awkward about it. Could be the fight. The counter dug into you pretty hard. But if it's not, next time we'll just find a position that feels better. The Kama Sutra says there's over 60 of them, so I bet we can find a few. Next time, huh, he said, his expression filling with humor and promise. She smiled. Mm-hmm. I like the sound of that. Me too. She dragged her fingers over his shoulder for a moment, then she met his gaze. But you gotta tell me if something hurts, okay? The last thing I want is to hurt you. He nodded his head, digging his chin into her belly and tickling her. She flinched and laughed, but then his expression went serious. I want to apologize for this morning, he said. Becca traced a design against his skin. What happened this morning? Did I do something? No, it wasn't you at all. There's shit that happened in Afghanistan that I can't tell you about, and I haven't made peace with it. It blindsided me this morning and sent me to a dark place. Her heart squeezed. I can't imagine everything you dealt with over there. Just know you can talk to me, okay? Even if it's just to tell me you need some space. He kissed her stomach and nodded, his eyes ablaze with emotion. Can I tell you something else? Nerves had her stomach doing a loop-the-loop, but she couldn't let this go unsaid. Nick arched an eyebrow. Okay. What you said to Jeremy earlier, I just wanted to tell you it would matter to me too. If something happened to you, it would matter to me a lot. A sting prickled at the back of her eyes and she blinked it away. He rolled onto his side and stroked his fingers over her breasts, her stomach, her thighs. Light teasing touches meant to explore and comfort rather than to arouse, although just being in his presence accomplished that. He kissed the valley between her breasts and and whispered, so beautiful. And then he was quiet, seemingly preoccupied with her skin. Had she said too much? It didn't seem like she'd made him uncomfortable. Maybe he just didn't know what to say. Becca sank it back into the pillows and watched him look at her. Such a gorgeous man. Would you let me do something, he finally asked, voice low and suddenly serious. She smiled. Probably. Be right back. He pushed off the bed and disappeared into the hallway again. What was he up to? When he returned, he had a fistful of pens. What are they for? He's a tattoo artist, by the way. (laughs) He crawled in bed next to her, then met her gaze. I want to draw on you. Bad. Even in the dim light, his eyes blazed, his his expression intense and so damn hungry. Heat shot through her body, sending a tingle of thrill through her core. Okay, she whispered. Skin markers, he held up the five pens, non-toxic. They'll wash off, eventually. He winked and laid the pen in the crooks of where her thighs met. Don't drop them. They were cool against the still, her still-heated flesh. She chuckled, but his enthusiasm was sexy as all hell. What happens if I do? I'll have to go exploring for them. He picked the black marker and uncapped it. And this is a disincentive? His deep chuckle puffed against her belly as he leaned in and drew a long line down the left side of her ribcage. God, she loved the sound of his laugh. Don't move now. Which, of course, made her want to lean up and see what he was doing. She laced her fingers together to fight the urge to play with his hair or stroke his shoulders. I want to see. No. You just feel now. Trust me. He drew more lines. Roll on. 
Okay, I'm going to read again from It Sting So Sweet, but this time um, from a different story. This is um, a novel told in three parts. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this book in the 1920s is because I wanted to write about a time when women were coming into their own. They just had the vote, or they got the right to vote, and they were sort of figuring out what marriage now meant when they had autonomy and they could go to work and contract on their own. And um, what did it feel like in a time if you had an alternative sexuality that you couldn't express? There were no communities that understood it. There was no internet at the time where you could find people who were like-minded. Um, and I, I have a couple who is struggling uh, because they just had a very naughty night together. And uh, my hero is freaking out about it. His name is Jonathan, and he... Uh, he begins the argument with his, his woman with this. What I want is wrong, and it's sinful. I'm a depraved monster inside, Nora. If there were anything near enough, I'd throw it at him. Stop saying that. Oh, for the love of God, I don't need your pity. It isn't pity, you horse's ass. I'm insulted. When I went with you the first time... I thought that I wasn't a virgin, but I was, because you were the first man to ever touch me, truly touch me, or at least the first man to touch what was really inside of me. Everything about myself that I'd been afraid of came awake in a moment, and it wasn't ugly. I am not twisted and ugly inside, Jonathan. He stands up, rounding the bedpost to face me. I never said you were. You say it every time you call yourself a monster. Because if you're sick and sinful and depraved for what you want to do to me, what does that make me for wanting you to do it? His eyes narrow. He exhales sharply from his nose. He looks away. Oh, I whisper, both hands to my face in despair. Oh, you do think there's something wrong with me. He takes my hands, pulls them gently from my horrified face, and clasps them in his. It's just... I used to see men beat on their women on the farm, drunken sots, big fists, lots of tears. I'd see those same women go back to those men, make excuses for them, just like you're doing for me. We're not like that, I say, wishing there were words for it. If I'd asked you to stop last night, wouldn't you have? Of course. Then it's play. It's a game. Games have rules, Jonathan says. Then we'll make some. He hesitates as if tempted. People don't do this, Nora. How do you know? Maybe they do. Just not perhaps in the middle of a party. And, and maybe they don't. Maybe no one in the world plays these games. Maybe that's why we're drawn together out of everybody else in the whole world. We're perfect for each other. Nora, we just can't do anything that feels right to us. Why not? I stare at him hard, waiting for an answer that doesn't come. Why not, Jonathan? The end. <laughs> uh, we have one more reading, and then we have some games. Technically, we're done in five minutes. Okay, just That's okay. We are here to make your experience a good one. Uh, my excerpt is from Friends to Lovers with my super yummy British Viscount, because he is my favorite hero, as you know. And what you do need to know is that he blew it. He tried to go on a date with his best friend, and he treated her like every other woman in the world, and she called him on it. 
and uh, it was horrible, and he knows he blew it. And what's worse, all his guy friends are telling him that he blew it because they're all friends. That's what happens when you try to sleep with your best friend. And they don't want to see her hurt, and he doesn't either, but he wants another shot. Getting back into Daphne's good graces had to happen immediately before her anger cured like wet cement. Gib cleared his throat. Or she'll walk in on the arm of a supportive boyfriend, if you help me. A triangulation of looks passed between his friends. Raised eyebrows, waggled eyebrows, shrugs. Sam stepped forward. You gotta be sure. 100% in it to win it. No more half-assing it. Right. Totally committed. In theory, at any rate. No guarantee he wouldn't muck it up, this being his first real go at it. You could be romancing three other women with no more than a smile. Milo wagged a finger. Daphne's going to take effort. Are you sure you want to work that hard? Is there any chance you'll break her heart, Ben asked. There's a much stronger chance she'll break mine. Gib figured his metaphorical cock and balls were already on display in the snow. Why not throw his raw, bleeding heart out there for them to stare at, too? I didn't like watching Daphne walk out on me last night. The last time I felt that poleaxed was when I took a full-on kick to the solar plexus in soccer, sidelined me for the rest of the game. But without Daphne, I'll be sidelined a lot longer. She's the first and only woman I've ever wanted to have stick. What if she's my only shot at true happiness? They were perfect together. All the time they'd spent as best friends proved it. Toss in their red-hot attraction for each other, and it was the perfect match. Well as long as you disregarded the epic shitstorm he'd created last night through his laziness, stupidity, blundering. Ben gaped at him. Did Ivy write you that speech? Because I swear, pink cotton candy coated each word. Polka-dotted birds flew out your ass. Milo squinched his face into the same death mask of pain he wore with a hangover. Another sentence, and you would have started growing breasts. Now I know why you Brits always bury your feelings. It's damn embarrassing when you air them out. Gib could take the insults. He didn't disagree with any of them. But will you help? Of course, or we wouldn't bother putting you through the ringer. Ben broke the twig arm off of Gib's snowman and started writing in the snow. Here's where you start. Tell her something about yourself. Something scary real. Something deep. Something you'd never share with that endless string of perfect boobs and surgically perfect faces that parade through your bedroom. This was going to be as bad as the grail quest. Impossible from the first step. Daphne's my best friend. She already knows everything about me. Does she? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> she doesn't. So it is almost time for us to wrap up. We had a game to play. I'm not sure if we have time. It shouldn't take that long. I have, if I get um, two volunteers at least... To play Pin the Heart on the Hero, who we have standing over here. And as a prize, you get... We have three prizes for oh. you today. We have... Four. Marsh- four. Oh. We have marshmallow-filled chocolate. We have cashew brittle, all from the same place that make the chocolate you've been sampling. Mm-hmm. And a, a four-legged dog. Well, they don't make three-legged dogs. <laughs> my, the puppy in and my book a, is a three-legged dog. A, three-legged dog. Yeah. A three-legged dog. 
I could actually consider cutting the legs off the dogs. And but then you'd have to sew them together, up, yeah. But, uh, I don't have time for that. So who wants to pin the heart on the hero? Is it blindfolded? Do you have to be blindfolded? You do have to be blindfolded, but not for long. And I would die here. If you have a heroin, I'll do it. We only have a hero. No, 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 we can use mine. That's a girl. Oh. She's got a boob. It's good okay. enough. Okay, okay, all right. If you want to come up, then. <laughs> all right, then I will need um, an assistant. I'll hold it. Okay, thank you. Okay. And while you watch how much fun he's having, we can have multiple people play, so just think about the prizes and the yumminess. Tiebreaker. It's no fun without the tiebreaker. Oh, Jason. All right, Jackie. All right, we need a tiebreaker. Just all right, up you come. Wow, it's looking like it is good. We use the one with the woman. Okay, now I'm going to put this sticky in your hand. Here's where the strip is. 
Aim for the heart. Aim for the heart. Okay. No. 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 You're not close the heart. Oh, he's trying to peek. No. No. They're not helping you at all, these people. Straightforward. All right. Anyone closer? Anyone closer? Uh, we do have four prizes. And we would like to, to give everybody a gift. So, Aaron, you said you wanted the dog. All right. Jay, was it Jason? Yes. One of these is for you. You choose light or dark. Do you like light chocolate or dark chocolate? It has marshmallow inside. Well, then here, take that. You'll like it. And then this one for you. And for our last participant. All right, we would like to announce that Ukuzu Books, an incredibly wonderful store located in Towson, right across from the mall, is the one selling our books at the back of the room. We're happy to sign anything you purchase there. And I believe there is also a survey to fill out for the library located over by the couch uh, by the picture of Poe. And most of all, we're so thankful that you came out to spend your Saturday with us because we had an absolutely wonderful time chatting with you about our favorite topic. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'd be happy to sign any books that you'd like us to. I just said that. I'm sorry. I was finding. I didn't hear that. Yes. Where did Jackie go? I'd like to say thank you very much to Jackie. all of our authors, and let's uh, give them a round of applause and thanks. Oh, there she is. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.